again, welcome to Freedom. It's good to have you here today. And let me say to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to Freedom Online. We're glad to have you be a part of the service in that way. And we're happy to see you here today. It's good to see uh, new faces in the room. Uh, it's summertime, and that always uh, means a couple of things. It means that we've got a lot of regular folks who are on the road, but it also means that we have the privilege of, of having some guests who are visiting. So thanks for taking time to be with us in worship today. And thank you, Stone, uh, for leading us today. Stone does a great job. He... Stone leads our students every Wednesday night uh, in their worship time as a part of their service. And uh, it has been fun. Stone's a part of the discipleship group that I take part in every Monday morning. And uh, I have really enjoyed watching God at work in Stone's life. And Stone, I have to tell you, every time you ever lead worship... It blows my mind watching. I don't know how many of you noticed Stone's playing left-handed, but he plays left-handed upside down. The big strings are on the bottom instead of the top. I'm like, do you have to be dyslexic to play that way? I'm like, that, that a little bit. That's that's crazy, but good. But of course, you could hold it upside right, and I wouldn't be able to play a tune. So, we are in the book of Daniel. If you got your Bibles, I'll go ahead and invite you to turn there with me to uh, Daniel chapter four. We're in a series that's entitled Unshakable, and um, we're, we're not going to do the whole book of Daniel. We're going to be here for about another month, uh, and yes, I'm taking the coward's way out. Um, I, part of the deal is I just didn't want to spend half a year in Daniel, but no, we're not going to cover all the dreams and visions and the apocalyptic stuff. That can be for another day, so we're, we're just doing the narrative portion of Daniel right now. It's the, it's the more action-packed part of the book. And uh, the approach that we're taking is that Daniel really becomes for us a narrative that teaches us how to thrive no matter what life throws at you. Because uh, throughout all that Daniel experienced, it was just one huge challenge after another for him and for his three godly friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in each situation, they faced some kind of great test that if they passed it, there was a, a tremendous promotion to follow and they were given greater influence and so it just becomes a picture for us of how to deal with all kinds of adversity and the reward that comes with that. And so one way of looking at Daniel is to see that there are nine different major tests that the characters go through. Seven of them are Daniel's tests, and one of them, as we saw last week, last week was a test that his three friends faced. Today is a, a bit unique in the whole story because it's not about Daniel and it's not about his three friends. It's about the king. And a test that he faces, and this test isn't like any of the others. The, all of the others are about some form of adversity, you know, adversity of, of major change in having your life turned upside down, or having a lot of pressure put on you, a lot of peer pressure, all these different kinds of, of adversity. But today has a very different feel, because the test today is one that every one of us have to face, and it probably is the most applicable of all the, the tests that we'll look at in this book, because it's the test of success. And how do you handle success? If, if there's one part of Daniel that America needs to hear and deal with more than any other, it's probably the chapter that we're going to look at today and the reality that we're going to talk about today. How you deal with success. Now, there are a lot of us who in our gut would just say, if that's a test from God, then let that be the test I have to face for the rest of my life. Just let me live with success and blessing and let God test me that way. Well, here's the truth of the matter. You've probably spent most of your life living in that place. Because compared to most of the rest of the world, we are living what the world would say are very successful, very prosperous lives. And honestly, success has the potential to be the biggest tripwire that we'll ever encounter. And so, as you'll see in the story today, it certainly was for the king. And, and there's some great truth for us to be reminded of here. Now, a recurring theme, if today's your first week with us, I'll just catch you up. A recurring theme in this whole story is just a reminder that before God blessed you in a significant way, he's usually going to test you in a big way. He, he's going to get you to the point that you're the man or the woman who is capable of handling the reward and the responsibility and the authority that he wants to pass on to you. Because understand, from the time that God first put mankind on the earth and he said to the first two human beings that he ever created in his image, I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you dominion on the earth. You go out and you subdue the earth and you have dominion over the earth. What he's saying is you're a part of my family. And so as my son and daughter, wherever you go, you extend the kingdom of God on earth. And God, ultimately, his plan has always been to extend his kingdom to involve everyone and everything on this planet planet. And so 
ultimately, it's always God's desire that he would extend your influence. He's wanting you to have greater influence. And with that influence, to be extending all the values and the benefits of the kingdom of God into the lives of the people that you influence. And so he loves to elevate you and me. But he has to get us ready for that. Because if our character hasn't developed to be prepared for that, being in the spotlight will ruin you. It absolutely will. It will corrupt you. Having money and influence will ruin you. Success will. If your character hasn't been developed so that you can handle that in a way that always gives God the glory, that always extends his reputation and helps to expand the kingdom instead of creating your own little kingdom on the earth. You realize that's the great temptation, don't you? We're here to extend the kingdom of God. And the great temptation is that as our influence is extended, we'll see it as our kingdom. And we get to be the big dog in our own little kingdom. And so every situation becomes a test. All of this life on earth is a test. Preparing us for the next step that God has for us. Jesus reminds us of this reality in Luke 16 when he says... You must be proven trustworthy in small things before you'll be trusted with greater things. And if you've not been found faithful with what is not your own, who will trust you to give you your own? And so today we dive into the test of success. And we've, we've all watched people whose lives have been ruined by success, haven't we? The folks who seem to be just cruising along, doing well, faithful, godly people... Good marriage, healthy family, and then something major happens. They get a huge promotion or a new job where there's somebody important or they run into a bunch of money and before long their life just becomes a train wreck. Success changes them. It ruins them. It reminds us of Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-one that says a hot furnace tests silver and gold, but people are tested by the praise they receive. We don't think about that very often, do we? Every compliment is a little test, how you deal with it. Somebody said appropriately that compliments are like chewing gum. You better just chew on them for a little while and then spit them out, because if you swallow it, it's going to do some damage. You've got to be careful about how you handle compliments. You know, human beings are the only animal that God made that you can pat them on the back and their heads will swell. You can't do that with any other animal. That you pat us on the back and the head starts to swell, that's... That's part of what's broken in us. So today we're going to talk about the dangers of pride and ego and how that can trip us up in such a big way. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, I know anytime you ever have to do a teaching on pride, there are a lot of people who are listening who will kind of just put it on autopilot and it's, it's sort of like you silently give yourself permission to daydream because... We're so tempted to go, yeah, pride, yeah, I'm sure there are people who've got that problem, but I, I don't think I struggle with that. I struggle with other things. Let me just remind us all of this. The Bible says that pride is deceptive. Do you know why pride is deceptive? Because the people who've got it don't know that they have it. That's what is deceptive about pride. The person who is eaten up with pride is the one who thinks, I don't think I really struggle with that. I think I'm doing pretty good in that area. Bingo, we're talking to you. So right now, those of us who were putting it on autopilot need to grab the, the stick again and say, all right, this is, this is for me. I better get back dialed in here. So let me tell you quickly the backstory. story. Um, if you haven't been here, just a quick reminder. Daniel lived in the period of time when uh, Judah, the, the remnant of the Jewish people, uh, had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of uh, Babylon. They had been carried away when Daniel was 15 years old. About 25% of the population, they're going to live the remainder of their lives in a foreign country as exiles. Seventy years that uh, the Jewish people are going to live in exile. Those that are left behind are going to live in absolute poverty under the reign of a foreign king. Daniel's a part of a small group who are sort of a test group that they are brainwashed and educated for about three years, trained to be good Babylonians. And so he's supposed to be one of uh, the wise men for the Babylonian king. So that's the Daniel backstory. Let me quickly give you the backstory on King Nebuchadnezzar. He was born the son of a king. His father was the king of the Babylonian Empire. But it was not the greatest empire on earth when, he was a, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a young man. Assyria. Uh, held that designation and when Nebuchadnezzar was very 
young, probably early, early 20s or late teens, he was installed as a commanding general in the army of Babylon, sent out by his father to do battle against the Assyrians, and he led in a great victory over the Assyrians. And so he comes home now leading an army that has demonstrated that they are the most powerful army on the earth, and he is suddenly a rock star. He is elevated in the eyes of all the people as the greatest. And and they know he's going to succeed his father as king. And sure enough, a short time later, his dad dies. And now Nebuchadnezzar, as a very, very young man, is not only a conquering general. He is the reigning king over the greatest kingdom on earth. And that kingdom is rapidly expanding. I mean, it's, it's centered in what is today Iraq, but it... Under his leadership, it expands all the way across you know, Pakistan and into India. It extends westward uh, across um, the Middle East and into Turkey. It's just a huge region of the world that's under one ruler. And so he's incredibly powerful and famous and feared by all. And it's not just that he's a great military leader. It's not just that he's a great political leader. He knew how to build things. And, and the city of Babylon was a beautiful city and, and, of course, was known for its hanging gardens. The hanging gardens of Babylon are considered one of the seven great wonders of the world on the scale of the Egyptian pyramids, if that just helps to put it in perspective. I mean, people travel from great distances just to see what Nebuchadnezzar has done. And so uh, if anybody on earth in that time period, 2,500 years ago, had reason to feel good about themselves and feel pretty puffed up, he does. I mean, he's been leading since he was a very young man. He's been king since he was a very young man. And and now just to kind of catch you up on the timeline, he's actually not a great deal older than Daniel. When we started the story in Daniel 1, Daniel, you know, he's carried away at age 15. He's in this training program until he's about 18. Chapter 2, the very first time that their lives are put in danger because the wise men can't tell the king what his dream was, that's when Daniel's about 18 years old. So when you jump from chapter 2 to chapter 3, what we read last week, where you've got the whole drama with the the three young men being thrown into the fiery furnace, 15 years have passed. They're now in their early to mid-30s. Well, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, what we're going to read today, 17 more years have passed. So there's a lot of story not being told here. But what I want you to see is in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's still the king through all of these 32 years and longer. But So when... In chapter 2, he first is, he has his first encounter, at least that we know about, with the one true God, where God interprets his dream through Daniel. That's been 32 years ago. He's reminded of who the one true God is 17 years ago when he throws these three guys in the fire and they don't burn up and they don't even smell like smoke when they come out. He has this another, uh, another God moment where he's going, wow, that must be the true God. Now, 17 more years have passed to get to where we are today. He's now been the king for way over 30 years. Nebuchadnezzar is in his early 50s. He's been at this for a long time. So that's just where we are in the narrative. And so we pick up in chapter 4 where he is... The king firmly entrenched in power, and he has one abiding problem that we know about from the scriptures. He is so smitten with himself. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at who I am. And as a result of that, this ongoing struggle that he had in his life, we, we all have ongoing struggles. Everybody in this room, everybody watching and listening online, you've got your own struggle. Maybe your struggle is with fear, with anxiety maybe it's it's with depression or unresolved anger his was with ego and pride and so daniel is going to reappear in the story after not being there in chapter three as sort of the secondary figure because nebuchadnezzar is telling his story in chapter four he has another troubling dream and in his dream he sees, I just I won't read you the whole chapter, it's a long chapter, but he sees this tree. It's a vast tree. It's so large that it, it sort of spreads out and provides shade for all the earth. And in that tree, all the animals have something to eat, and they have a place uh, for shade and for rest. But then he says, I, I saw from heaven a holy watcher looking down on that. It's an interesting way that he put it. And the holy, he says it in plural form, these holy watchers came and said, cut down the tree, 
cut off all of its branches, strip off all of its leaves and all of its fruit that have fed all the creatures on earth. And with the stuff that remains, make a bronze and iron band to, to wrap around that stump, to bind it there. And let it sit out there so that the dew gathers on it. And he's just bothered by this whole thing. He, he understands that this isn't just a crazy dream. There's meaning behind that. And so he at least has the good sense this time to send for Daniel, the interpreter of dreams, the one who says, I don't interpret dreams, but there's a God in heaven who does. And so Daniel comes in and the king says, so tell me what my dream is all about. And this time he goes ahead and communicates the dream to Daniel. And he says, tell me what that means. And Daniel essentially says, my Lord, the king, Oh, that this dream were about anyone but you. I wish that this dream could be about any other leader than you. He's showing great respect and love for the king. And he says, the meaning of the dream is this. You are the tree. Your kingdom is the tree. There's no other kingdom like it. It's so vast that it spreads out and covers the whole earth. And and people from... So much of the earth find shade in your kingdom. And they, they find food and provision in your kingdom. But the Lord is the watcher from heaven. And the Lord has seen that you, Nebuchadnezzar, have taken credit for all that he's done for you. Everything that you have and everything that you rule over comes from God. It's God who installed you here. But you have chosen to take the credit for that. You've tried to stay in the spotlight. And because of that, God has judged you. And it is the Lord who says, cut him off at the roots. Leave nothing but a stump. Strip it bare. Lay it waste. Bind it. And let the dew settle on it. And he says, the word from the Lord is this. That your kingdom is stripped away from you. The Lord will take away your kingdom And your mind, you are about to literally go insane. And when you do, all of your nobles and officials will abandon you. They'll put you out of the city. And you, as an absolute lunatic, will live like a wild animal. You'll root around on the ground and you'll eat grass as if you were an ox. And the the dew will cover you. And your hair will grow out as if it were eagle's feathers. And your, your fingernails will grow long and curl as if they were the claws of a bird. And that is how you will live for seven seasons. That's a pretty harsh word. You understand why Daniel said, I wish this were a word of judgment against somebody else other than you. But then Daniel gives a, a, a word of, of hope in that. He says, my Lord, why don't you change your ways? Why don't you repent and turn and do what is right and give attention to caring for the poor? Because maybe then the Lord would relent and would allow you to maintain your position as ruler over your people. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't change. He doesn't relent. And 12 months later... As he's essentially beating his chest and saying, look at all that I've done. God thunders from heaven and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you've been warned. I've told you what would happen. And today it happens. And all that Daniel prophesied through interpreting that dream happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes a total lunatic. He loses his kingdom. And he lives out in the wild for seven periods. Now, Daniel's kind of notorious for this. He always talks about periods of time in these vague terms. Nobody's certain what seven periods means. It says for seven seasons. And so it's it's interpreted to mean kind of one of three things. It either means seven seasons the way we would count seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, which would have been you know about 21 months. Uh, others think that it means seven seasons like rainy season, dry season, so two seasons equals a year, so about three and a half years, and other people think it means seven years. Nobody knows for sure, but we do know from history, not just from the scripture, but from secular history, that all of this actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That for an extended period of time, he lost his mind, he was put out of the kingdom, and he lived like a wild animal before eventually being restored, as we'll see at the end of the story today. So for somewhere between two years and seven years, he's going to live as a wild animal before he does the things that are necessary for him to be restored. And so what we're going to do today 
is essentially just two things out of this story. We're going to ask the question, what is it that gets us in trouble when life is going well? How is it we tend to get tripped up so that hopefully we can avoid those things? And then secondly, understanding that along the way, we're, we do get tripped up. Pretty much all of us somewhere along the way fall on our faces and get to a bad place. How do I begin to recover and get back to where God wants me to be when I have tripped up so badly? So, you ready for that? You ready to dive into that? All right, let's go. First of all, what gets us into trouble? And everybody said we need that, right? We need to know how to avoid trouble. Well, from Nebuchadnezzar's story, three things that we learn. Number one, we get in trouble when we get comfortable and complacent with success. In Daniel 4.4, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home taking it easy in my palace without a care in the world. We all tend to start thinking like that when everything's going smoothly, don't we? Where we just kind of stop seeking so hard after God, praying so hard. I mean, does this line from Nebuchadnezzar sound like somebody who's just hungry for God? He's just chasing after God. No, that's the person who's going, man, ain't life good? Aren't things going well? We're enjoying the camper and we're enjoying the beach house and we're enjoying having season tickets. We're just loving life. Just just having fun. Ain't God good? Yeah, we may say that. That's about all the credit we give him for that. In your own experience, I mean, be honest. Do you pray more when things are going great or when you're desperate? Absolutely. When somebody's sick, when you're out of work, when, when money's tight, something's got to happen. We've got to have God come through. Oh, we're on our knees then. But when it's the middle of football season and you just got a, a big bonus from work and it's hunting season and there's all kinds of good things going on, we're far more excited about the deer and the crimson tide and the, the war eagles and the whatever else than we are about the Holy Ghost and Jesus, aren't we? I know. That's, that's how we are. So listen to pride speaking. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Woo! He is eating up with himself, isn't he? Look at what I have done. Now, none of us would ever say this, would we? No, we would never talk like that about ourselves. Yeah, but privately, in our own minds, we'll go, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? I mean, think about those other people I graduated from high school with, a bunch of losers. <laughs> Wish they could see me now. I need to see when the next class reunion is. Go show them my wife and my ride and my fancy duds. Tell them how much money I'm making. You know, got to work it in the conversation casually so I don't sound proud. We get eaten up with ourselves when things are going well, and Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. The scriptures warn us from one end to the other about the dangers and the deadliness of pride. By the way, what's the middle letter of pride? It's the same thing as the middle letter of sin. It's I. It's all about I, 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 I. Look at what I've done. It has been said, and I think rightly so, that pride is the root of all sins. Now, the scriptures help us to understand there really are, are three different root issues that sin comes out of. And it's summed up in the scriptures as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know what those three broad categories cover? The lust of the eyes is all about. I see it, I gotta have it. It's the power, it is the desire to possess. It's, it's lust for having stuff, lust of the eyes. Then there is the lust of the flesh. That is the craving to experience. I've got to feel it. I want to drink it. I want to taste it. I want to take it. Eat it. Have sex with it. Whatever. We've got to feel something. It's the, it's the desire to experience. And then the pride of life is the, the craving to be. I want to be recognized. I want to be successful. I want to be somebody. All three of those are deadly. But of the three, pride is the fundamental root issue. Whatever we get in trouble with, pride ultimately is driving it. I mean, think about it. When the scriptures and the counsel of the Holy Spirit says, you ought not to do that with your money. You shouldn't spend that on that. But we think, but I really would like it. And I'd probably make really good use of it. 
I think I'm going to do it anyway. What are we saying? I know better. The Holy Spirit said one thing, but I know better. That's pride. When the Scripture says, yes, you love this person, but you're not married yet, so you don't have sex yet. And we say, well, I know what the Bible says about that, but that's a very old book. And we really love each other. And we're thinking one day we may get married anyway. We sort of feel married in our hearts already, so it's going to be okay for us. That is pride talking, saying, I know better. When the Scripture says, I should forgive this person, but I say, yeah, but if I did, they'd probably hurt me again. Besides, I remember just what a dirty, low-down scoundrel they really are. They don't deserve to be forgiven. So I know what the Bible says, but I know better. Pride keeps me from obeying God. Pride is the root of all sin. Proverbs 16.5 sums up pretty well the Lord's attitude on the whole thing when it says the Lord hates. Everybody say, say hates. The Lord hates those who are proud. You can be sure he will punish them all. The scripture says repeatedly that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You ever been at a place in your life where it just finally dawned on you that all of the roadblocks that you were running into weren't just coincidence, that God himself was resisting you? Oh, that's sobering when you get there. Sometimes we don't ever even catch on to that. We turn everything that we bump into into the devil. Oh, the devil's just coming against me. It's just so bad. Satan's just out to get me. And I think half the time, if we could see with eyes of clarity, we'd realize that ain't the devil, that's God. And he already told us that because he said in his word, I will resist the proud. And right now you're full of yourself. You're making your own plan. You're living life by your own rules. And God's going, I'm the roadblock. That thing you keep banging your nose against is my chest. Because I'm standing in your way. I told you I resist the proud. But on the other hand, he says, I love to give grace to the humble. You know what grace is? It's the power we need to change. Which, that one verse alone will preach. I mean, we could take the rest of the day on that. How many times have you been hung up on the same issue in your life over and over and over? You've, you've recommitted 27 times. You've, you've told yourself a thousand times, I'm going to change this because I can handle this and I'm going to do it for Jesus. And we try in our own power and God goes, yep, and you just keep running into a brick wall called my chest. Because I'm standing in the way going, you can't do it. The sooner you figure that out, the sooner you can get the grace from me so you have the power to change. It's a big difference. So the first thing that trips us up is just that. We get comfortable, we get complacent, we stop relying on God. Second thing that trips us up is we don't pay attention to the warning signs that God gives us. Now God loves us and wants us to be at a healthy place with him. He wants to be pouring out what we need. And so along the way when he sees that we're getting complacent or we're getting to an unhealthy place, he'll give us warning signs. We need this because pride blinds us. And I'll just tell you a little footnote. I don't know anybody who needs to pay attention to this more than pastors do. And this moment right here typifies why. Because every lead pastor in America this morning is doing what I'm doing. We're standing on a stage in the spotlight. And whether you realize it or not, doing this feeds the ego. It just does. You see, the very nature of what we're doing right here, at some fundamental level, feeds the ego. Put the spotlight on me. Put the camera on me. Look at these people gathered listening to what I have to say. Must be something good going to come out of me. Now, you don't sit around and consciously think that, but I'm telling you, at some basic level, that gets fed in us. You don't have to be a pastor to feel that. You can be... A person in the community that is respected, somebody in a government office, somebody who who in business is in a position that others look to you. They come to you for counsel. They look to you for direction. And that just tends to feed our ego in some shape or form. It's the equivalent of being in the spotlight. If you're in that kind of role whatsoever, whether it's as a pastor or community leader, business leader, whatever, let me tell you what we all need. 
We all need to go home and cut some grass and change some diapers and take out some trash and wash some dishes and do some of the ordinary things of life to remind us we were put on this planet not to be in the spotlight, but to serve and to put the spotlight on Jesus. We need to be very careful about those things because this can be poison. Well, Nebuchadnezzar lived his entire adult life in the spotlight. And so God gave him some warning signs. He sent him a dream and he sent him Daniel to explain exactly what was coming. And Daniel essentially said in verses 24 and 25 of of chapter 4, because you've been arrogant and because you've ignored God, you're about to lose your kingdom and your sanity. That was his major warning sign. But I'm curious, are there any warning signs in your life that God's given you that something needs to change, that something's wrong? Have you seen any lights flashing around you? And I realize for some of us we go, well, what does a warning sign even look like? Well, it can take a lot of different forms. I mean, sometimes a warning sign can just be um, conflict, relational conflict. If pride is your issue, that will be one of the most obvious ones. Because, you see, when you're eating up with pride, you want everything to be about you. And you want to always get your way. And whether you realize it or not, you're always wanting everybody in the family and everybody around you to follow along with what you want to do. And every time they don't, there's conflict. So conflict can be a warning sign. Just, just general chaos can be a warning sign. Where you just feel like, man, the wheels seem to come off in every direction. All these unrelated things. It's just, it's just chaos. We felt a little bit of that in our house the last few weeks. Just just. Chaos. I don't know why that is, but when there's enough of it, I, I don't mean like relational chaos, but it's air conditioner goes out, the whole thing has to be replaced. Lightning strike. You're having to replace one thing after another because it all gets fried. We're still figuring out what all got fried at our house this week when we got struck by lightning. Just you, if you have enough of that stuff going on, sometimes we need to step back and go, is this random chaos or is this chaos that's God's blinking light going, I want to get your attention. I want you to, to notice something that needs to be addressed. Sometimes the warning sign can be just our own behavior that we need to step back and recognize. It can be as simple as, I realize now that I don't do the things that I used to do. I used to be at church every Sunday. And now I'm there about once a month. I used to be in a small group, but now I don't have time for that. I used to be in the Word every day. And now I just don't seem to have... The interest in that or spend the time in that. You see, those are red blinking lights going, warning, warning, something's wrong, something's broken. You better look for a root problem because something is wrong here. We're ignoring the warning signs that God's given. Daniel's given the warning sign when he says, O king, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. That's a long-handed way of saying, repent. Repent, stop doing wicked things, and be kind to the poor, and then you might continue to be successful. You know, the word for the king is a word for us. Most of us live with great success and blessing and favor, I mean, more than we recognize. And if we don't want to continue to enjoy those things, a lot of us need to hear the same two words. Repent and show kindness and help for the poor. I want us to consider those couple of things for a moment. First of all, it was a call to repent. The word metaneo means change your mind. It starts with you need to check up from the neck up. You need to, to stop and consider how am I thinking. Nebuchadnezzar's problem was he was thinking about himself and his kingdom. It was all, all about him. It's interesting to note that the scriptures command us again and again to humble ourselves. We're never told to ask God to humble us. In fact, that's a real dangerous thing to pray. We're not supposed to run to God and say, God, make me humble. No, the scripture says you humble yourself. How do you do that? Why would it say it that way? Because humility is a choice. It is, and it's not a complicated choice. Humility is simply a choice... To put God and others ahead of ourselves. I think when we hear the word humility, and let's be honest, we hate that. I mean, if if I told you in advance, come to church Sunday, we're going to talk about humility. 
There ain't nobody in Baldwin County that wants to show up for that service. Nobody gets excited at that thought. I think in part because we misunderstand humility. That humility is us accepting the idea, I'm so worthless. I bet God is so disappointed in me. See, this is humility talking. Because I'm such a loser. That's not humility. Humility doesn't have anything to do with that. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. If I'm walking around all the time going, I'm such a bad person. I always mess up. I always screw up. What's wrong with every one of those statements besides the fact that they're negative? They're all about I. I, I, I. I'm still focused on me. You see, humility is the opposite of that. It's not thinking worse things about me. It's just thinking less about me. Pride walks in a room like this. Or pride walks in a party. And you know what pride is thinking? I wonder how I look to everybody else. I wonder what they're going to think of me. I wonder if they're going to like my shirt today. I wonder what kind of impression I made in that conversation I just had with them. I wonder if they want to talk to me. Pride is always about me and how I'm coming across. You know what humility does when it walks in the room or walks in a party? Humility is looking around going, I wonder who needs to be encouraged here today. I wonder who's being left out. Who's sitting alone? Who's by themselves? Who's hurting in this room that could just appreciate somebody coming up and reaching out to them? That's humility. Humility is others first. And that's a choice. God doesn't have to give you that. You just have to choose whether to do that or not. Is it going to be about me or is it going to be about others? The second instruction that he was given was to serve and be kind to the poor. Why would God give that as a command? To make it about the poor. Well, one, because the poor need the care. But two, because it takes the focus off of us and puts it directly onto others. I don't know how many of us ever recognize as Americans what a bizarre bubble we live in. So few people in the world live the way that we live, but historically such a tiny, tiny fraction have ever known life anywhere close to how we live today. I mean, even most poor people in America live so far above how most of the world lives now or has ever lived in all of history. I mean, things like if you have a refrigerator with any food in it at home, you're doing better than 50% of the people on the planet today. If you've got any change rattling in your pocket right now or sitting in your ashtray when you go to your car, or you have a car to go to, by the way, any change sitting on your dresser, sitting at home, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. We just have so, so much, and we tend to be so out of touch with the poor and the needy of the world, which is part of the reason that it's so important and why you're going to, I'm just going to absolutely wear you out with this, that Every one of us need to find some place that we're going to go on a mission trip in the next five years. I believe that's a word from the Lord for Freedom Church. Find a place and go there because some of what God wants to change in us is going to happen as we serve the poor here. But some of what we need to experience, we're going to have to get outside of this country to experience it. And for some, it's going to take you drastically outside of your comfort zone. So go ahead and put on your seatbelt. God loves to take you there. We need to see more than the American experience. I love America. Every time I go outside this country, and I've done it a lot, I've been to a lot of other countries, every time I go out, I'm so grateful to see other parts of the world, and it makes me more and more glad to get to come home to America. I'm so grateful for that. But we need to see and experience how other people live, and we need to serve those people. So Butch is going to be up here time after time saying, hey, y'all, get ready. Here's where we're going next. Next This year, we went to one place outside the country. Next year, we're going to at least two places. Butch will be sharing more with you about that in the future. Go ahead and be praying. Expect God to move you to an uncomfortable place as we learn to serve the poor in Jesus' name. I want to just share with you three passages of Scripture. I could give you a truckload, but three from Proverbs. You may want to jot these down. Just they're all three from Proverbs. Just you can put down the, the references. The first one is fourteen twenty one. It says, If you want to be happy, how many in here want to be happy? It ain't a trick question. It's okay for those of you who want I'm not sure. I think you may bust us if we do this. I don't think God wants me to be happy. I'm, this is probably a trick question. No. I want to be happy. If you want to be happy, be kind to the poor. We do not equate those two things, do we? If you want to be happy, Buy a wave runner. I've never seen anybody frown on a wave runner. Right? You don't expect that to be the second half of that sentence. 
If you want to be happy, be kind to the poor. How can that be? I dare you to show up and spend time with anybody who's just come back from a mission trip in the week after the mission trip. They're hard to be around. They're so freaking happy. I mean, it's just like, would you just come back down to earth with the rest of us? Because... There's just so much joy in serving others in Jesus' name, especially getting to go be with those who are really poor and struggling, who have great joy, by the way, and it, it spills over onto us. If you want to be happy, be kind to the poor. It's a sin to despise anyone. Proverbs 14, 31, that was, that was 21, the first one. This is verse 31. Whoever mistreats the poor insults their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it, in Matthew 25 when he says, Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done to me. And whatever you fail to do to them, you fail to do to me. And Proverbs 21.13 says, Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Woo! That's a scary thought, isn't it? You want to be helped when you're in a bind? The Lord says, Well, then you better be careful to help others. You know, all of us need role models because things like what we're talking about today, we can hear it on a Sunday morning, and while we're in here assembled together, go, that's right, and I need to be more like that, and I need to work on this. But the truth of the matter is we go out in a world that is completely coaching us in another direction. It's telling us uh, success and prosperity is what brings happiness and make it all about you. You make all that you can, hold on to all that you get, that, that life is, is all about those things. And so everything else is coaching us in another direction. And one of the things that we need is role models who really model doing this kind of life well. And I'll tell you that in my own uh, life experience Rick Warren is one person that has been that kind of role model to me from, from a distance but so many times we hear stories of pastors who don't live up to what they've preached and just you know stories that are disappointing and so I've appreciated Rick's example and some of you are very familiar with him some of you may not know I'm talking about Rick pastor Saddleback Church in Mission Bayo, California it's just it, it's in Southern California just east of uh, Laguna Beach and he planted that church in 1980. If you don't know his story, it's, it's really such an interesting one to see how it's unfolded. But from the time he was a very young man, he planted that church straight out of seminary. He and his wife Kay did. And uh, they started with absolutely nothing. And, um, I mean, the, their story of how they planted. He'll tell you quickly, don't, don't copy what we did. We didn't know how to do it, didn't know how to plant a church, didn't have the money to do it. So we got everybody in church leadership to bring their credit cards. And we all maxed out our credit cards to come up with enough money to plant a church. And he's like, so don't do it that way. That's not a great plan. But anyway, that, so they, you know, they just started from scratch. And really, I wish I could tell you more of his story, but I'll just kind of cut to the chase. From the time that they were very young and didn't have money, they just determined to be generous with what they had. So they started out as tithers when they got married, and they just said, we're going to, every year, no matter how we're doing, we're going to give more. We're just going to be intentional and increase that. And he said, some years it was just so lean, all we could increase would be like a quarter of a percent. And other years when we'd gotten a raise or something, we'd increase like, like 3%. But we had just learned to be faithful in giving more and more every year, not just a larger dollar figure, but a larger percentage of what we made. And so, you know, the church had experienced growth, and, you know, people by 20 years in were, you know, recognizing who he was but it was interesting that from then all the way up to now he's still pastoring that church he took an approach that uh, almost none of the other go and blow in churches in america have done he just determined we're going to keep it really simple here we're not going to be on tv we're just we're going to keep it super simple now this is always one of the 10 largest and fastest growing churches in america it still is you can't find them on tv not that there's anything good or bad about tv he just he understood that ego was such a big deal, and he's like, I do not want to be some superstar you know, TV preacher. And he's like, I don't need to do that to myself. I would struggle with that. And, and he just has chosen to live really simply, staying in the same house he lived in decades ago and driving an older vehicle and wearing simple no-name clothes and wears a $15 watch. And, I mean, just lives very, very simply and chooses to be generous with what they have and even just in what they do in their service, he said, I've been to so many conferences in large churches where you're just so amazed by the whole production, but you walk away discouraged going, we could never do that at our church. And he said, we just want to keep it simple enough that when other people from other churches visit us, that they go, well, they didn't do anything that we couldn't do at our place. We wanted to be encouraged when they go home. And so they've just kept it really simple. Well, life rocked along for the first 20 or so years with them just learning to be more faithful in what they had, uh, had to be more generous with that. And uh, in 2002, 
Uh, Rick wrote another book. Some other books he had written had been reasonably successful. But he wrote a book unlike anything else he had ever written before. And it was called The Purpose Driven Life. Everybody's heard of it. He had no idea what was going to happen with that book. It took off. And it began to sell not just hundreds of thousands of copies. It began to sell millions and millions and millions of copies. It soared to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for three or four years. Today, it is the most widely published nonfiction book in American history next to the Bible. Nothing will ever surpass the Bible, thankfully. But other than the Bible, there's never been a book written in America that comes close to what God has done with that book has been translated into 137 languages. Only the Bible has been translated more times than that. Not just millions of dollars started coming in. Tens of millions of dollars started coming in to, to Rick and Kay. And they're looking at each other going, what are we supposed to do with this? Because we've always lived so simply and not, you know, intentionally not had much. And now, you know, here all this money has come pouring in. What are we going to do? And so... First of all, they said, well, let's just give back to the church everything they've ever paid us. So the first thing he did was pay off, paid the church back for 22 years of his salary and then cut off receiving any salary. So for the last 16 years, Rick has been pastoring one of the 10 largest churches in America for free, which I think is kind of cool. Um, they, along the way, have created mercy ministries and uh, peace ministries, which are designed primarily for caring for the poor. People with AIDS, people who are uneducated in third world countries, they are spending tens of millions of dollars to serve those in greatest need and to support the ongoing ministry of the church. And they made a, another determination in that, that they would, you know, tithers tend to give 10% and live on the other 90. And they said, let's be reverse tithers. Let's give away 90% and live on the 10. And having done that for a while now, they've said, well, let's continue to increase our giving. So now, now they live on less than 9% of their income and give away over 91% a year. Here, here they are today, present day, still living in the house that they were living in more than 25 years ago. He's still driving the same old truck that he was driving more than 15 years ago, unchanged by that level of success. Now, I'm not saying this to say Rick is, is the next Jesus. I'm just simply saying that to say, for me... He's a really healthy role model because he is a godly man, Kay's a godly woman, who are living out what we're talking about. That God gives greater reward and greater influence to people who use it appropriately to serve others rather than going, look what I've done. God wants to increase your sphere of influence. God wants to reward you if you're willing to share the reward to serve others. In Psalm 72, it's an interesting psalm written by King Solomon where he prays for greater influence, for greater success, for the expanding of his kingdom. But in every section of that psalm, he says, Lord, please grant this so that I may care for the widow. Expand the kingdom so that there are more orphans that I can care for. Lord, expand our influence so that more foreigners... Don't miss that one. So that more foreigners and exiles can be cared for. If we expect to, to be blessed by God and to handle the success that God gives appropriately, it's got to be to use our influence to help those who have no influence. So the second thing that will hang us up is not paying attention to the warning signs that God has given. The third one is this. We just put off doing what we know is right. And this puts us in danger of falling just like Nebuchadnezzar did because he procrastinated. He delayed and postponed making the change. In verse 28, it says, all these things happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, where, you know, Daniel had spelled out what's coming. But then 12 months later, as he's walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon, you, we just ought to stop at that point and go, wait a minute, time out. You've been warned that you are about to lose your mind, lose your kingdom. You're going to become like a wild animal. I mean, this is, you better change, buddy. And the next breath is, and 12 months later, he's walking around, looking at all that he's done, and he had changed a thing. Can somebody say, stupid procrastination? Yeah, he just put off dealing with it. I mean, he knew that he should trust what Daniel says, but not ready to deal with that today. 
So as he's walking around, a voice from heaven says, Nebuchadnezzar, these things will happen to you. Your royal power has been taken away from you. You'll be forced away from people. You'll live with the wild animals. And immediately the words came true. Nebuchadnezzar was forced to go away from people and he began to eat grass like an ox. Boy, if God spoke to you and said, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen to you. How would you respond to that? Wouldn't you just jump on it right then? Wouldn't you just immediately begin to make adjustments in your life? But hasn't God given you warnings? Hasn't the Holy Spirit put His finger right in specific parts of your heart and your mind and said, this needs to change because I want to bless you. I want to use you. I want to expand the influence that you have. But this has to change. How many times have we gone, oh, ow, oh, Lord, I know you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I I want to change that and then just kept on doing the same thing. I want to change it, but let's work on that tomorrow. Let's make that adjustment next week. Nebuchadnezzar did that for another 12 months. And as a result, he lost his kingdom and he lost his mind. And the next scene, he is like a wild animal living on the ground and just rooting around eating grass. And history bears this out that it happened. Now, I don't think any of us have ever seen that happen. But you know what we have all witnessed? Is friends of ours just losing their minds. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody living in blessing, living in a good place, and then they start making choices where you actually said, Are you crazy? You got a loving wife. You've got kids at home. You go start messing around with another woman. You're a follower of Jesus. Have you lost your mind? Yep. You're going to start messing with company money. You're going to start breaking the law with how you handle the money. You're going to start cheating on your taxes when you're a follower of Jesus. Have you lost your mind? Success will lead us to lose our minds. So, and I know we're about out of time. It's not going to take me long to share the final portion here. But let's just cut to the chase. For all the warning signs that God gives and all the instruction that the Word of God provides for us, the truth is every single one of us will come to places where we go, it's too late for me. I ignored the warning signs, I got complacent, and I'm in a bad place. You don't need to raise your hand, but there are plenty of people in the room, plenty who are watching and listening online right now, you're already there. Too late. I I ignored the warning signs, I got complacent, and now I'm in a bad place. What do you do? There's good news in this story. Nebuchadnezzar, after seven seasons, his kingdom is fully restored, completely. And the people follow him. And he actually goes to a greater place of prosperity and a greater kingdom than he ever had before. But three things had to happen for that to happen. And it models for us three steps toward recovery that we all take. They're very simple. It won't take but a moment to cover them. The first one is this. You've got to look up to God for help. Nebuchadnezzar is the one telling this story and he says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven and I could think normally again. The beginning of recovery is right there. Because you see, pride will always say one of two things. Either I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with drinking. I don't have a problem with relationships. I don't have a problem with porn. I don't have a problem with pride. I don't have a problem. Or... It will say, I have a problem, but I can handle it. I can deal with that. Nobody else has to get involved. I can fix this. I've got it under control. What do all those statements have in common? I, 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 I. And as long as you think that, you'll never get to a better place. The beginning of recovery is you stop saying, I don't have a problem. I can deal with this. I can fix this. I'll try harder. I'll be better. I'll never do it again. When you finally go... I can't fix this. Jesus, I need you. You alone can deal with what's broken in me. Jesus, you alone can make this right in me. When we stop 
depending on ourselves or we stop blaming other people and saying, well, if my wife would just be better at this, if my husband would just stop doing that, if the government would step in and do this, if, if somebody else would do what I need them to do, then I'd get to a better place. If we stop blaming and stop relying on ourselves and just turn our eyes toward heaven and say, God, without you, I am lost and undone. My life is a train wreck in slow motion as long as I'm in control. So we begin by looking turning our eyes toward heaven and looking to him. By the way, God is so loving but also so firm. Sometimes he will knock you flat of your back to help you get your gaze up toward heaven. Where there isn't any other place to look. And by the way, for some of us as mamas and daddies and grandmothers and grandfathers, we won't let the people that we love the most get all the way on their backs where they would look up to heaven. Because we're jumping in to save them all the time. Sometimes the most loving, godly thing that you can do is to stand back and go, I'm going to let them just land where they got to land. I hope it will be on their back so they'll turn their gaze toward heaven. Some of us have got to learn we are codependent enablers. And we've been keeping people from coming to God because we've been busy saving them rather than letting them be saved by the one true Savior. Moving right along. Secondly... We've got to wake up to God's greatness and start back worshiping him. Nebuchadnezzar said, my sanity returned and immediately. And I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. When I stop focusing on me, I have to choose to focus on God again. Giving him the glory for everything that's going on in my life and returning to the basics of what it means to worship him. Don't think of just this as worship. Worship is turning your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God. And a bunch of different things can help you do this. Corporate worship can do that where we worship together as a body. But a lot of things can do that. Spending daily time in his word helps us do that. It gets my mind's attention and my heart's affection directed toward God. Being with my small group helps me to do that. Being in here helps me to do that. Serving others in ministry helps me to do that. So at just a real practical level, the whole thing of I'm going to turn my attention back on God and worship. I'm going to begin to actively love God. Remember, we love others by serving them. And the way that we love God is by serving others in his name. So reengaging, serving in ministry, getting back in his word, making a commitment. I'm not going to be a once a month worshiper. I'm not going to continue to live the life that says, I'm going to just be out here playing and having fun with all of my toys and going to all this other stuff and I'll make it to worship occasionally. No, worshiping God becomes central. I need to hear from God more than I need anything else in my life. It's like air for me. Returning to that kind of mindset is key. Somebody has said we get better when we replace pride with praise and it certainly is the case. God was trying to teach his people the same lesson a thousand years before Daniel ever lived. When Moses was leading the children of Israel out of their captivity and into the promised land, they spent 40 years being prepared for what God had next for them. And when they're about to enter in, Moses got worried. He, he was almost more afraid of what they would do when they experienced success than the misery that they lived with when they were slaves. And so he gathers all the people and he gives them kind of a warning speech. And I just want to read the high points of that. In in Deuteronomy 8, he said this. And I want you to hear this at a personal level, but I want you to also hear this as a word for America today and see if it doesn't fit. He says, remember how God led you through the wilderness these past 40 years? He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Some of us would say, I don't think I've ever been hungry in my life. You may not have been hungry for food, but have you ever been hungry for other things in your life? Hungry for a meaningful relationship? Hungry for a husband or a wife? Hungry for a child? Hungry for a job? He says, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and he tested you with hardships many times to test your character and to see if you will obey whatever he commands you to do. Now God is bringing you into a good land, a land with plenty of water, with bountiful crops, orchards full of fruit, and you will lack nothing. So when you're full and satisfied and prospering, praise the Lord with gratitude for all that he has given you. But be careful. Everybody say, but be careful. You better be careful that you do not forget the Lord and that you continue to always obey every command of God. Otherwise, when you've built your fine houses and your gold and silver have multiplied, your heart will become proud. And you'll forget that it was God who saved and delivered you out of your slavery and gave all this to you. And when you become successful, do not think, I did all of this by my own strength and I became rich by my own power. 
Instead, remember that it is God your Lord who gives you the ability and strength to produce wealth. Some of us need to go back and underline that in Deuteronomy 8. If you have wealth, it is because God gave you the ability. I warn you, if you ever forget God and begin turning things into idols, oh, we can turn all kinds of things into idols, your car, your truck, your job, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you start turning things into idols that you worship, God will destroy it and all your nation just as he has destroyed other nations before you who forgot God. Why don't you think that's a word we need to hear in America today? When you get there and you're living in comfort, don't forget God. So when you really get onto it, you realize your biggest test in life may not be when you lose a job. It may be when you get the job of your dreams. Your biggest test may not be when you face a giant mountain of debt. It may be when you get a raise and a promotion beyond your wildest dreams and suddenly you've got money to buy toys and distractions like you never had before in your life. And that becomes the biggest test of your character. When God blesses you like that, will you think of him every day? And then third and finally, the the final piece in, in what we see here in recovery is tell others how God has saved and changed you. Nebuchadnezzar had a story to tell, and and he's the one telling the story here. King Nebuchadnezzar's message to all the peoples, nations, and languages inhabiting the entire earth. And he says, I wish you much peace. I'm delighted to share the signs and miracles that the Most High God has worked in my life. His signs are superb. His miracles are so powerful. His kingdom is everlasting. And the rest of that chapter is Nebuchadnezzar telling his own story. He told everybody who would listen how God had worked in his life, what God had done for him, and how he had changed him. You have a story to tell. Are you sharing your story? How has God changed your life? And who have you told that to lately? And if you haven't told it, what's holding you back? Is it pride, worried about how am I going to sound? What are they going to think of me? I don't have a story to tell. Is pride standing in the way? Realize a vital part in everyone's recovery. We get this in CR. In CR, the 12th step is all about the fact that to keep your recovery, you've got to give it away. You've got to tell your story. You've got to share about this life change with others to help them along the way. It's a part of recovery in Christianity. Part of how you stay clean and on the right path is you tell your story and you give glory to God. It's not about me. Let me just tell you what God has done for me. You hear Nebuchadnezzar. His heart has been changed. How cool is it to get to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? One of the biggest... Yeah, we're going to meet who in heaven? Nebuchadnezzar. One of the biggest, most powerful tyrants on the earth came to know the living God. He had a story to tell. Let me tell you how good God has been to me. Has God been good to you? Has God been good to you? Tell that story. Tell somebody this week what Jesus has done for you. So where are you today? Can you identify today more with Daniel and his three friends who kept meeting all this adversity? Or if you're honest, does your life come a little closer to Nebuchadnezzar's in terms of realizing, I live with so much comfort My life really is so good. And if it is, how are you dealing with that? I think if a lot of us are honest, we'd have to go, ooh, there are some areas that are out of control. I've gotten complacent and I've got some problems and I've been just trying to manage that. Maybe what you need to do today is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did and let today be the moment when you turn your gaze toward heaven and go, God, I need your help. I need to return to the things that I used to do that I don't do anymore. I want to get back on track with you. Would you bow with me as we go to him together in prayer? Father, we we pause now to just say thank you again for your love and your favor, for your kindness and your blessing in our lives. We know every good thing we have comes from your hand because you're a good and loving father. But we also realize, Lord, that in the middle of, of your blessing in our lives, so many times we get off track and we need your help to find some kind of order again, to get our hearts back where they need to be. Would you speak truth to us today? I don't want anybody looking around. I simply want us to pray together. But I want to ask you, 
as you've listened today and you consider your own life, if you realize that there's some area of your life where you need to turn your eyes back toward heaven and say, Oh God, I need your help. I need your help to get back where I need to be. Maybe it's a a habit that's out of control. Maybe it's just that you know your heart isn't where it needs to be. Your life isn't where it used to be or where you, you know it should be. And today you just go, God, I want to turn my heart and my eyes back toward you. If that's where you are, if nobody else looking, would you just raise your hand as a simple confession? I just want to turn my gaze back toward heaven. Yes, people around the room. If you're watching and listening online, is that where you are today? Father, I pray today for every person whose hand is raised that you just pour out grace. We know you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble, power to change. Pour out grace in this section, grace in this section, grace in this section, grace to those watching and listening online. God, change our hearts. Teach us to love you with reckless abandon. Teach us to depend on you and not on ourselves. Help us every day to live with grateful hearts. Hearts that that begin to care more about others than ourselves. Who care more about what others are going through than how we look and sound. Give us people this week we can share with. Just to tell the simple story of what Jesus has done for us. Grant gifts of life change here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.